Good morning on Zoom and here in person. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. Uh, and it's my pleasure to, to come together with you this morning and just share God's word. Um, we have an amazing opportunity to, to do what Ali said and to, to witness our king descended uh, here this morning. So we're going to do that this morning. Um, I was recently this week uh, speaking with a friend of mine about my opportunity that I had to travel a bunch uh, around the world uh, for work and even an opportunity to go with some people who were not as uh, seasoned travelers as I have had the pleasure and blessing to be. Uh, and it was fantastic to go with those people just to get such a different perspective on international travel. And one of the things that I remember very clearly is when we would go to restaurants. Um, I am an adventuresome eater, and that was the context that I was talking with my friend about. And I loved just getting new food and trying anything, regardless of what it was. And so I would pick something at random, usually, from the menu uh, without even, I don't know what this thing is, but it, I would order this. And it was almost always delicious. And I loved it. And I loved experiencing these new things. By contrast, uh, my colleague, who would travel with me, refused to try anything new uh, and would only order things from the menu that he recognized the name of. Uh, and that's a problem when you're traveling internationally in a place that probably doesn't uh, have the same experience of cuisine that you do. And I remember in particular one time, uh, my, my colleague ordering Salisbury steak. Uh, we were in Nigeria uh, and he, he ordered Salisbury steak. And um, what he got was not Salisbury steak. It did not match his expectations that the title that he read on the menu led him to expect. Now, the food that I got, I don't remember the name of it, but it was delicious because it was the, it was the specialty of what they made at that place, and it was wonderful. But he would set himself up time and time again for failure and for trouble because what he would do is have these expectations that what he was ordering would, would be a certain way based on the name. Uh, and today we're going to be reading Luke 19, 28 through 48. And we're going to see a very similar thing, that people have this expectation of what this event is going to be like. Jesus is finally going to arrive in Jerusalem. We've been waiting for this for chapters. This is the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy and the next step in God's amazing work at saving the entire world. But sadly, to many of the people present there, today's story is not going to taste very palatable. Many people are going to have different expectations of what this event they thought should look like. And that's going to blind them to the true arrival of the king of peace. You'll see this morning in your outline that Jesus, who is Israel's hope for salvation, arrives as the king of peace. But that the old kingdom has forgotten peace and so must face destruction. And that means that for salvation, the old kingdom must be replaced by the new kingdom. I pray this morning that through these verses, we come to a greater understanding of the king of peace and what he actually did to found that kingdom 
in our hearts. I hope that you will see maybe more deeply and maybe even for the first time what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's start by reading Luke 19 verses 28 uh, and we'll see G- through 40 and we'll see Jesus finally arrive in Jerusalem as the promised king of peace. Read this with me, Luke 19, starting at verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And, he's, and as he was drawing near, uh, sorry, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In these verses, we reach a climax of the last 10 chapters of the book of Luke. But even more than that, we see a climax of thousands of years of Israel's history with the arrival of the king of peace. Verse 28 is pretty easy to skip over, but it's the literary climax that sets up the major point that Luke has been building throughout this letter to Theophilus. In Luke chapters 9, and 10, and 13, and 17, Luke has been using the theme of on the way to Jerusalem to sort of indicate a pause in his narrative to give us the opportunity to drill down deeply into the fundamental beliefs and the implications of Christianity. In these past chapters, we heard about the proclamation of God's kingdom, growing God's kingdom, numbering his citizens, and then finally, the timing of his, his kingdom. And so now in verse 28, with this simple phrase, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Luke signals for his readers and for Theophilus that the action is now resuming. And what is coming next in these verses is absolutely at the heart of his argument. And so it's fitting that this is one of the most memorable and celebrated scenes in Christian heritage, in in our Christian experience, right? This is what we call the triumphal entry. 
This is a, a moment in the history of Jesus that stands out as critically important. And how Jesus accomplishes this triumphal entry is rich with historical and cultural and spiritual significance. And I'm not even going to get into half of what we could talk about this morning. But I want us to, to focus on one thing in, in particular here, which I find very interesting, that in Luke's narrative, verses 29 through 35 are primarily not about Jesus, but about a donkey. It's about this donkey. And in the culture of that time, riding into a city on a donkey had very significant implications. When a king would enter into a city, he had two ways of doing this. If it was for the first time, his manner of entry would identify and define for all of the people the manner of his rule. The first way he could enter into a city was on the back of a war animal, a horse. He could be accompanied by his chariots, his army, and he would declare ownership by right of military conquest. This is what riding into the, through the gates of a city on a horse would indicate. This would be like coming through into town, riding on the back of a tank, right? That would, that would really leave a message for people about what the rule of this new king is going to be like. But the second way that a king could ride into the city was on the back of a donkey, symbolizing peaceful possession. An indication that the city is willingly and gratefully joining the kingdom. But this is no less a possession. This is still a king arriving. This would be like coming into a city, maybe on the back of, of some sort of, in some public transporta transportation, not on a bus, or not on a tank, but maybe riding on a bus, sitting beside the people that you're actually going to, to be ruling. Or maybe this would be like driving into work uh, and arriving there, driving your father's, um, your father's company car, right? He already is the, the leader of this company, and you are arriving signaling that you already have rightful and peaceful possession. There are lots of important historical instances of this in Israel's own history. First Kings chapter 1 tells us the story of King David as he anoints his son Solomon as the rightful and appointed ruler to come after him. And in that story in 1 Kings, David gives Solomon his mule to ride through the city on his way to be anointed, indicating the peaceful inheritance and the transfer of the throne. But there's an even greater prophetic promise that is being fulfilled here. There is all kinds of history. There are all kinds of implications. But what I really want us to not miss this morning is this prophetic fulfilled pro promise, which was written by the prophet Zechariah to the people of Israel, where God promises two things to both save his people and judge his enemies. Let me read for you Zechariah 9, 9 through verse 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That is the promised king that Zechariah tells us about. So do you see the statement that Jesus is really making here and why Luke focuses so much here in these verses on the donkey? Jesus is claiming that he is the rightful and anointed ruler of God's people, sent by God with authority to rule, sent to establish the kingdom promised by God to the ends of the earth and to speak peace to the nations. Peace to the nations. And although he is coming humbly on the back of a donkey, friends, he is no less a king. And so his followers understand this statement loud and clear, which is why in verse 38, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is an echo of Psalm 118, praising the steadfast and enduring love of God, which is also possibly connected to this image of King David. This is a beautiful moment, and I do not want us to miss that. But Jesus' welcome and his recognition are also not unanimous. In verse 39, the leaders of the people tell Jesus to rein the people in. Jesus, teacher, teacher, don't let your students overstep here, okay? Please, just stop them from going too far with these claims. To which Jesus says, essentially, they're not even going far enough. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I am the anointed of God, one with the creator, appointed to bring God's kingdom to the whole earth. And that earth will recognize me, even if no one else does. Which sadly is almost the case, isn't it? We'll soon see that this recognition of Jesus by the crowds is only on surface level. This will all too quickly, within the next two chapters of the story of Luke, change. And Jesus already knows this. In the midst of the praise, Jesus knows that those who should be God's most devout citizens, the leaders of the people of Israel, are in fact failing to recognize him. The king of peace has arrived, but they don't know who he is because they have failed to recognize what peace is at all. 
let's move on to the second point in your outline as we read together verses 41 through 44. And we'll see how Jesus responds to the heart of the people who have forgotten what peace in heaven really looks like. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here we see Jesus weep because those who should have been most dearly his have in fact forgotten him. Upon Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it looks to the religious leaders like Jesus has completely won over the crowd and they are feeling threatened by this. But to Jesus, his entry as much as it is triumphant, feels like a heartbreak. He weeps in verses 41 and 42 because he knows that his people, his people don't even know him. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Friends, this is a day in the history of humanity that will change the world. No nation or tongue or people would not be impacted by that day that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to begin his work of salvation. The work of establishing the peace of heaven. Not merely earthly peace between political enemies and nations, but peace in heaven, peace in heaven between a holy God and a sinful man who have been enemies since Adam. That is what Jesus is accomplishing here. But this global impact of the visitation of Jesus does not go the way the nations expected. And he can't even, Jesus doesn't even expect the nations to understand. He doesn't, he doesn't hold them to that standard. But he does hope that in that moment, his people would have got it. Even you, among all the nations of the world, I don't even need them to recognize me. But I do desire that God's people would understand. Jesus wishes that those who are blessed with centuries of God's presence, would recognize him. That the people chosen from among all the nations to be closest to the heart of the king of peace would know him. If even they, among all the nations of the world, would understand who he was, it would be a joy. But they don't. The truth of God's words have been hidden, even among them. 
I was trying to think of, a, of an emotional similarity to this feeling for Jesus. What would that have felt like to him? This would be like a soldier walking into a room after years of being deployed and separated from his loved ones. He would come into this room where there are strangers and there are friends and there are acquaintances who he walks right by without them recognizing him. But he doesn't really care because he will have time to introduce himself to them later. This first arrival is about his family, his wife. But when he walks up to her, even she doesn't recognize his face. His most intimate companion, even she has forgotten him. It is no wonder to me that Jesus weeps. And as he comes into his inheritance, his rightful rule of the kingdom of God, given to him by his father, it is not only with triumph, but with a deep sense of loss, of foreboding. The citizens of the kingdom of peace in heaven are still at war with God. They have chosen, instead of recognizing the visitation of their king, to serve the king of self. And so that kingdom that is standing in his place must, my friends, be torn down. So what is that old kingdom? It's whatever holds the place of rulership in the place of God's true and anointed king. In the case of the people of Israel, it was the physical walls, the physical city of Jerusalem. That is what they expected when they heard the kingdom of heaven. That is the kingdom that they held up as the most important and the place where they put their hope. So in verse 43 and 44, Jesus declares that that kingdom must be destroyed, must be torn down. In verses 43 and 44, the days are coming when they will not leave one stone upon another in you. To establish the kingdom of peace with God in the hearts of his people, Jesus must first remove the kingdom of self. So friends, what does that look like for you? How do we apply these same truths to Grace Fellowship Church? Just as the people of Israel failed to recognize their king, we frequently do no better. Where do you fail to recognize Jesus and you focus instead on yourself? Fathers, does obtaining the respect of your children blind you to your responsibility to represent to them the love of Jesus Christ? Does the desire for recognizing, or sorry, does the desire for recognition among your peers blind you to the character of humility that Christ calls us to? Does a passion for rightness blind you to the love God has for the lost and his compassion for them? Does your fear of financial instability 
blind you to God's heart of generosity. These are just some of the expressions that the kingdom of self can take. And friends, that kingdom cannot stand in the place of God's rightful king, Jesus. And so Jesus, in this moment, sets about tearing down the kingdom of self among his people. He starts at the heart of their beliefs. He doesn't start with Rome. He starts with them. And he quickly reveals why the crowd is going to fail to recognize him. They cheered for the promised king, but they expected the king to tear down the rule of Rome. Their oppressors, they did not expect him to tear down the rule of sin in their hearts. And so when Jesus begins there, they didn't understand. Let's read verses 45 and 48, and we'll see the last point on your outline, that the old kingdom must be replaced by the new. Verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Here we see Jesus begin to drive out sin from within his people and to reunite the people with God, replacing that old kingdom with a new one. I was struck as I was studying this by the contrast of the promised king of peace, whose very first act recorded here is one of violence. He enters into the temple in verse 45, and he starts driving people out. How is that the king of peace? (laughs) But these merchants were in fact taking up space in God's holy house that had been mandated by God to be set aside for the Gentiles to come and to repent. For the lost to find, to come and find God. Remember the promise of Zechariah 9? He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. The self-serving kingdom in the heart of God's people had put their own ability and ease to come into this place, this temple, above the priority of reconciling the lost with God. Maybe these merchants were charging dishonest prices we don't know it doesn't say here but they were certainly stealing from god his rightful inheritance of the nations 
And friends, that is a far greater condemnation against them than any price for a pair of doves. Verse 47 illustrates just how blinded the people of God had become. The chief priests and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. This would be like that same soldier coming into his room, unrecognized by his wife, and not only walking past her, but having her actively try to drive him out of the room, keeping him away from his children, away from his family. That breaks my heart. The very people who had the most exposure to God's word, the deepest intellectual understanding of him, were the ones who were the most blinded who failed most to recognize Jesus and to, and in fact, they actively opposed him. But friends, Jesus is no less king. Verse 48, they did not find anything they could do. Jesus will not be denied his inheritance, the inheritance of nations. He is the rightful anointed king of peace, and he will reconcile God and man. Nothing will keep him from his children, whom he loves and who he died for. Not even their own failure to recognize him. In fact, he's going to use that same anger and hatred to bring about his ultimate victory and to establish his eternal kingdom through his crucifixion at the hands of his own people. His eternal kingdom. Not a kingdom over Rome or of earthly oppression, but friends, a kingdom over sin and death itself. Friends, Jesus Christ has arrived in Jerusalem. He has arrived in State College. He has arrived in Uganda, in Japan, in Kenya. He has arrived, and we only need to recognize him. So how do we apply this? Friends, if you have not yet recognized Jesus for who he is, please let him overthrow your heart. Let him enter your heart on a donkey. Let him establish forever a peace between you and God. That's what's at stake here this morning. And if you have already given Jesus the throne of your heart, then please do not fail to recognize him in his time of visitation. Put to death the sin of, and pride that is in your heart. Make your life a house of prayer. A place dedicated to bringing the lost into God's house. Let go of the demand for respect, for recognition, for rightness, 
and security. Instead, cherish his commands and recognize his visitation. And for me, I know that as hard as it is, when I fail to do this, and I confess that I am guilty of this very, very often, that Jesus weeps over me. He weeps over all of us because he loves us so dearly. Friends, this morning, if you have that relationship with Christ, then we are numbered among the people on the earth who he died to be close to, to be known intimately by. And our choice to uphold the kingdom of self blinds us to him. And lastly, friends, may all of us, as an application here this morning, take heart that there is no need to fear. Though the people who most loudly claim the name of Jesus may also be the ones who most strongly oppose him, Jesus is king. Friends, though our society rages and clings to hate and malice, Jesus is king. Though our bodies fail us and we confront death and great, great suffering, Jesus is king. Though we experience one of these, or we experience all of these, friends, Jesus is king. He is the king that we sang about this morning. And he has arrived here this morning, if we only recognize him. Friends, let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning that you have come. Lord, and I confess that though I put myself in your throne, Lord, you are king and you will not let me stay there. Lord, I pray, God, that you come this morning and you reveal to us, reveal yourself to us in new ways. Lord, I thank you for your work in the world. Uh, Lord, we hear so many scary and terrible things. But Lord, you are king. And all of this is happening. And it does not mean that you love us any less. Lord, you are faithful to use even these things, even those of us who, who are broken, to bring about your kingdom of God. God, to bring peace on earth between your Holy Father and we who were your enemies. God, you are so good. And we thank you, Lord. Amen.